fantastic song, and I wonder, you know, do we pay attention to all those words through the song? I know sometimes I find myself, instead of singing, just reading through the song as we're going along, and the words are so fantastic. You know, I know who I am, who I believe, and I am persuaded that he is able. You know, I hope that's the message that I attempt to convey and that we hear uh, throughout the morning service on a regular basis, that it's all about being persuaded and being convinced on who it is that we say that we believe and why it is what we say that we believe and why we believe that, uh, all those things that come together. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, that I trust that you do, uh, because that is the most important thing that you can bring with you on a Sunday morning. Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, is your Bibles. And so we want to open them to Romans chapter 4 because it is in the Bible uh, that we learn about all this person that we just sang about. And so this morning we're going to read verses 1 through 12. And I know I've advertised verse 9 through 15, uh, but I do want to read the first eight verses to continue to keep it all in context. And I'm only going to have comments through verse 12. But uh, nonetheless, I want to read all this that is before us. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, starting at verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And now to the one who works... The wages are not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, Blessed is the man whose sin Yahweh will not take into account. It is, is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Father, we just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And Lord, as we read through a text such as this, maybe we scratch our head and wonder, what can we learn from this? And so, Lord, I do pray um, that your message would come clear, that this, your spirit would illuminate this text for us, and that we do indeed see and recognize that it is applicable for us today and how it relates to us today. And so, Father, I pray um, that you would now just uh, have us be attentive to your voice. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have simply titled this, The Commodity of Grace. Do you want to go to heaven? 
Okay. Anyone say no? No? I didn't think so. Uh, but you never know, so I had to ask, right? <laughs> I don't know two people that would answer that question in the negative, and so maybe it would be better to ask this, uh, why do you want to go to heaven? Maybe that would be a better way of asking the question, why do you want to go to heaven? Chick-fil-A uh, receives uh, the fantastic little restaurant that unfortunately I can't get a chicken sandwich at today because um, it's Sunday. Um, <laughs> Um, Chick-fil-A restaurant, they receive about 60,000 applications every year for folks who want to purchase or start or buy a Chick-fil-A franchise. 60,000. Chick-fil-A opens, here's the problem, Chick-fil-A opens roughly 80, 80 new restaurants yearly. So that leaves 59,920 folks without a Chick-fil-A franchise. But you have to wonder, how do, they, how do they distill through? How do they discern through? How do they review through 60,000 applications? The interview process starts with this simple question. This simple question, why do you want to own a Chick-fil-A restaurant? Why do you want to own a Chick-fil-A restaurant? How the applicant answers that question determines where that interview process will go and see if it actually continues at all. And so if the question that the applicant is asked, why do you want to own a Chick-fil-A restaurant? And your answer is, because I like chicken sandwiches, mm, probably is not going to go into the 80 pile. You may answer, because it would be my pleasure to own a Chick-fil-A restaurant. Again, probably not going to go in the pile for further consideration. And so again, I ask you the question, do you want to go to heaven? Why do you want to go to heaven? How do you go to heaven? Three valid questions, but probably the most important question to answer concerning our entrance, your entrance into heaven, is this. Why should God welcome us into heaven? Why should God put us in that pile of 80 versus the 59,920, if my math is correct? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's recap where we've been so far in Romans. Paul starts with all the reasons why. <laughs> and that was a journey, wasn't it? Paul starts with all the reasons why. Negative, negative, negative. All the reasons why God should not welcome us into heaven. Anyone. So the answer to the question, though, why should God welcome us into heaven? Or why will God welcome us into heaven? How would you answer that question? If somebody asked you that, how would you answer it? There's many different answers that you could have, but mine, I think, this morning, and I think that this would have to be somewhere in the mix, is just one simple word, grace. Grace. I suspect the more succinct the answer is to the interviewer from Chick-fil-A asking that question, 
the more succinct and concise that your answer is, probably the better opportunity you have of moving on. And so I try to make that analogy, that illustration this morning for this point right here, that I think if we have a fuller understanding and we really take some time to think about grace, then when we think about the question, why should God let us or invite us or welcome us into heaven, there is no other answer that we can give other than grace. That's all we can answer is grace. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we see in the gospel and a few more words, but still succinctly written for us and recorded for us. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Which is in Christ Jesus. That right there. Would be, a, would be a longer explanation then of grace. Now, it has also been said that what's assumed is what's most important. Now, for all of, the, all of you folks who are married or even not married, this applies in many different ways, but especially for us who have been married for eh, maybe even more than 30 years, uh, we know this to be true. Well, I just assumed you knew fill in the blank, right? Well, I just assumed I told you, or I just assumed you remembered. Right? There's all these assumptions that we want to make, and we don't, we don't, we don't express it. We don't communicate. We don't talk about it because we assume we've lived together for 30-plus years. Do you not know me by now? I, yes, I know you. Shall I explain to you a further definition of what assumed means? Well, maybe not. <laughs> you can parse the word yourself. But what's assumed is what's most important. And so while I assume this morning that I have nothing to say that you haven't heard or know already, I definitely think it is important to hear it again. And so in our text here today, we're not going to make any assumptions. In our text here today, we're just going to drill down on the commentary that Paul is now adding to what he already introduced all the way back in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible there, in chapter 2, I'm not going to comment on this. I'm just going to, Paul introduced, uh, introduced this issue here, and now he took a couple, a chapter or so later, and he's going to flush it out a little more. He's going to give some commentary to it here. And so I want to go back, and I want to read a few verses in chapter 2, starting verse 25, where Paul said this. Now, indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a violator of the law, your circumcision has turned into uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will his uncircumcision not be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a violator of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from people, but from God. 
Paul introduced that. This was a real issue in the first century church. This whole weird little topic or issue that we're talking about this morning was a real issue. And I think it is for us yet today, maybe in a different way, I hope in a different way, but maybe in a different way, but I think we will find that it is still well with us, well and alive with us here this morning. So the commodity of grace is a determent to saving faith. The commodity of grace is a determent to saving faith. We are saved by faith without works. We call it faith alone. We are saved by grace without works. We call it grace alone. Faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. We can finish it off with the scripture alone for the glory of God alone, if you care to finish it off. But who receives? This is what we're going to look at this morning. You have it on, I guess you can call that an outline in your bulletin. I don't know. Uh, but just two questions that we're going to uh, attempt to answer this morning. And the first is, who receives the blessing of grace? Who receives the blessing of grace? Second question, what is the result of receiving the blessing of grace. And so we need to start out this morning with what is this blessing that is being spoken of here? Last week, I don't think we touched on it too much, but last week in verse 6, we've seen that just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, working our way backwards, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This blessing that is being spoken of is just simply righteousness. We are credited. It's been credited into our account. It is an accounting term. It is put into our account, and there we receive righteousness. In that process, that transaction is being called here a blessing. So we are blessed people if we receive this credit of righteousness into our account. Remember last week, David declared righteousness. David declared righteousness in verse 6 and verse, or, uh, verse 7 and 8. And so that is the blessing that is being spoken of this morning, people who are righteous. So according to Paul's audience, this blessing was received through forms of work, of works, right? This blessing, this, this righteousness is credited into our account through forms of work. And so the issue Paul is dealing with this morning, as, we've, as we're well aware of by this point in time, and that is this issue of circumcision, this issue of what are we supposed to do with this, with this practice? I mean, and so it's like, um, what are we going to do with the issue of this practice this morning? How are we going to draw from this? And we may be asking ourselves, you may be asking yourself, really? Is that really an issue? And that's what we're going to be talking all about this morning? Was that really that big of a deal? Well, it was. So if you turn in your Bibles, if you want, or you can just listen to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we'll get an idea on what kind of big deal that this actually was. In Acts chapter 15, we often call it just the Jerusalem Consul. And, and it starts out like this. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, here it is, you cannot be saved. 
It was a salvific issue for these folks in this time. Verse 2, and then after Paul, he was a fierce guy, after Paul and Barnabas, they had a heated argument and a debate with them. The brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to headquarters, show up at conference office and figure this out. Go to Jerusalem and you discuss this with the apostles and elders and you let them make this decision about what's going on. But why? Why did it come to a head in what we call the Jerusalem Council? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn back or forward, whichever direction, to chapter 10 of Acts. In chapter 10 of verse Acts, the whole problem is Cornelius. You know the guy Cornelius? What was Cornelius? He was a, he was a military guy. He was a commander in the army, if you will. He was a major. I don't know all the ranks in the armies, but he was one of those high-up guys. He was commander-in-chief in essence, I guess we could say. But that wasn't necessarily his problem. What was his problem? He was a Gentile. Well, up to this point, the, the Spirit, God, had not poured out anything. The Gentiles were not part of the church. They were not unless they fully converted over to Judaism, they fully convert over, and even then they had limitations on their involvement within the church. And yet here we have this problem because Peter, uh, the, you know, the, the, the main guy of the church here, right? He goes and he shows up there. First, he says, I can't go there. Those are Gentile people. <laughs> Lord, I can't. I can't deal with unclean people. I can't deal with that. God shows him in a vision that know that you actually can. So he shows up. He talks to them about it. And sure enough, uh, they received the Holy Spirit. And if you look at verse um, 45, uh, chapter 10, verse 45, here's the problem. And so Paul, Peter goes back and he reports and he says this. He said, all the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because the, the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles. This had not happened up to this time. Remember, our, our history, the Bible story, the story of our faith is linear. It's moving along. And there's things that start, and then it shows for a period of time within the church history, and then it, then it is no more because it has served its purpose, as we see with circumcision. Well, here, the Holy Spirit fell upon the people, and they knew it fell upon the people because they had the gift of speaking in tongues. That was something that happened in the first century church. It was to show that no, the, the Spirit is alive and well within the church. And so here, that happened to the Gentiles just like it did the, the Jewish people. And so they said, we know. We know that they're just like us. And that's what led to this Jerusalem Council, and that's what led to this issue. Okay, if we think that works, if we think that, that salvation equals, if we think that salvation equals circumcision, then what are we going to do with all these guys who aren't? This was obviously very gender-specific, and so that's a whole other issue as, as, as the history transitions and as our faith moves along. Um, but what are we going to do? Paul was so frustrated with these people, these legalistic traditionalists, that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I wish, I wish that those who are insisting upon this would just go ahead and emasculate themselves. Just be liberal with the hatchet. Just be honest. Right? 
Paul is so frustrated. He's so frustrated with this is how it has to be. that He gets a bit worked up. Wow. Did they have a reason to be worked up? Did they have a reason to hang on to this ritual, this rite, R-I-T-E? Did they have a, have a right, uh, R-I-G-H-T, to hold on to this R-I-T-E? Um, yeah, they, they kind of did. And so we need to acknowledge that this morning also. Because often disputes and un- misunderstandings within the church, are, they come from some general, authentic, realistic places. And that's what happened here. And so we're going to follow this bouncing ball, if you will, here a little bit this morning. So go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 17. And I think I got all these texts, te- references in your, your notes. But in Genesis chapter 17, we see where it all started. In Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 9, um, it says that God said to Abraham, this is where the, the first covenant was given. God said to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, and every male among you who is eight days old, that's going to be important, every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, including, but not limited to, a slave who is born in your house, or who is bought with money from any foreigner, or who is not of your descendant, A slave who is born in your house or who is bought with money shall certainly be circumcised. circumcised. So, here it is, my covenant shall be in your flesh. This is where it starts. So now you understand why they said, hey, this is important. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, it was the law that was given to Moses uh, by God. It said that when a woman gives birth and delivers a male child, on the eighth day, again, we have a time frame. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So you can see that they absolutely had good reason to hang on to this practice, did they not? I mean, obviously, how were they supposed to know? Well, they should have known. They should have known, but we'll get there. You see, Jesus also dealt with this in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, Jesus just likes to push buttons. He likes to tear down walls. He likes to challenge our thinking. And in John chapter 7, verse 21, he healed this guy on the Sabbath. You can't do that. That's working. And Jesus says here in verse 21, I did one deed, and you are all astonished? For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, being Abraham. And even, here it is, this is why I want you to remember the eighth day. Even on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry at me? Because I made an entire man well on Sabbath? Verse 24, do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous 
judgment. So you see, you see the dilemma, right? I mean, so here we have this law given by Moses and the importance of the eighth day. And then we also have the importance of not working on the Sabbath. And so this is the dilemma that we run into, who gets to decide, right? There's two laws for both. Who's the one who gets to decide which law is kept and who gets to decide which law is broken? We do the same thing today, don't we? We do the very same thing. So I do the very same thing. Let me make this first person singular. I do this same thing today many times. I recognize one sin that's elevated above another sin, or I have this particular sin in my life, but I see a particular sin in your life, right? We make these decisions on it. This is the problem. And this is the problem that we're going to solve. Not we, but we're going to see it solved for us. But that's the problem they're running into. Who gets to decide and who doesn't? Well, they should have known better. Let me show you why. Genesis chapter 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And according to my calculations, Genesis 15, 6 comes before Genesis chapter 17. It was actually Genesis chapter 17 that God gave the covenant and the mark of the covenant, the sign of the covenant to Abraham. And so obviously Abraham was credited with righteousness before he ever received the sign. In fact, it was like 14 or 15 years when he was 99 years old that he actually received the sign. 99 years old. So, so that was like 14 years earlier he was actually credited with righteousness. So listen, God's plan, God's plan was never to make circumcision permanent. It was only a sign of what was to come. It was never meant as something to be permanent. It was only a sign of what was to come. And he already had recorded this all the way back in the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The most important books of Leviticus, five. Most important books of the Hebrew Old Bible. And yet in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moreover, Yahweh your God, will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants. Why? To love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Already, all the way back there, it was introduced that this sign is a temporary thing and it's going to turn a corner. It's going to go somewhere else. Jeremiah 29 or Jeremiah 25. This, this one here is, is really formative. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. He continues, Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, Moab, and all those inhabiting the the desert who trim the hair on their temples. I guess that was not an acceptable practice. Who trim the hair on their temples. Why? For all the nations, all those that, remember last week we talked about lineage, all those who are not of the lineage of Shem, all those people of the nations 
are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. You see, all the way back there, God is already showing and working with the people, working with us. We try to be faithful followers of Yahweh. Our faith is a linear. We don't go backwards. It's a linear thing. All the way back here, God has already said, this is what you must do, but this is where we're going to go. Baby steps, baby steps, right? They are miss. They're completely missing the point. How easy it is for us to, to miss the principle of what God is teaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, what does Yahweh your God require of you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Uh, that must come from Micah. I added it in there. And to keep the Lord, to keep Yahweh's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. And he keeps going. And he comes down to verse 16. So circumcise what? Your heart. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. Verse 17, for Yahweh, listen to this verse, for Yahweh your God is the God of God, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome, who does not show partiality and nor takes a bribe. Grace cannot be sold as a commodity. He will take no bribes. They are so focused on the sign that they fail to get off the exit. They are so focused on the sign given the direction that they completely miss what the sign is pointing to, exit ahead, that they totally miss it. So let's transition, shall we? That's the old covenant. The old covenant. Uh, time doesn't allow. We could do that another time if you're interested. The old covenant was a blood covenant. It was two things, right? It was circumcision and it was Passover. What's the new covenant? The new covenant is baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's the new covenant that has been given to us. And now here we're going to get uncomfortable. Many teach today that salvation is through baptism, and that forgiveness through the mass, through the Lord's table, through, com through communion, it is a, it, it's a strong teaching. You are saved when you are washed with the waters of baptism, and you are made clean, or you are forgiven when you receive the bloody communion. It, it, it's a literal communion. Christ is once again sacrificed. Now, I have baptized infants, and I have given the sacrament of extreme unction last rite to people that are dying. I have been called to an attorney ward, and I have held a little baby in my hand. She died, and I baptized. Do I believe that saved that little baby? Absolutely not. But there's a time to get into a theological debate, and there's a time to minister to the needs of people. I mean, I have, as a chaplain, 
to practice. Often there was a priest on staff. Sometimes they were there, sometimes they're not. When you register into the hospital, big hospital such as that, you say what your faith is, give a contact. I had the list of it all. I would call. Sometimes there wasn't time for that. And the rules were that I could administer that, the last rite, the last communion for them. And I would do that. Again, there is a time for theological argument, and there's a time to minister to people. This morning, it's time for a theological argument. There is a time for this. See, it is a denial of grace. It is a denial of grace to say, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, probably only weird theological nuts like me know what that means. It came from John Tetzel, a priest who went through the lands, shaking down the people to build a new church. And so that was his saying. If you give as you give, and as the coin is heard into the bucket, a soul from purgatory, because that's where you go, because you need to pay for the forgiveness of your sins, springs from purgatory. This set Martin Luther over the top. And this is what started the Protestant Reformation. We were protesting something, and it was this. Martin Luther went over the top. He went ballistic, if you will, over the selling of indulgences. Now, this is not my definition. This comes right out of a theological book. Indulgence is a remission of the temporal punishment that's deserved to sin, the guilt of which has been forgiven. So do you understand? The sin is forgiven, but the guilt remains. We must deal with the guilt. We must deal with the commodity of grace. We must deal with the sins forgiven, but we still must deal with this guilt right here. How is that? I have enough guilt. Just ask my wife. How is that? To believe your sin is forgiven, but yet you've got this guilt that must be dealt with? This grace that must be paid for? Maybe in the words of Paul, we would say, oh, you need baptized by water to be saved? How about 15 minutes? Exactly, I think what Paul would say. Humanity. Now listen, humanity has such a difficult time with just simply accepting grace. No strings attached. Just simply accepting guilt-free grace. Baptism is a sign. The Lord's table is a remembrance. Charles Hodge, the theologian from yesteryear, wrote in Romans, on his Romans commentary, he said this. He said, nothing is more natural And nothing has occurred more extensively in the Christian church than the perversion of the means of grace into grounds of dependence. Thus it was with circumcision, thus it it is with the baptism and the Lord's Supper, thus too with prayer, with fasting. This is the rock on which millions have been shipwrecked. 
Anytime we want to say faith plus something, grace plus something, we are shipwrecking our faith. And I promise you, if you show up at the doors of heaven and God says, why should I welcome you into heaven? And if you name anything that you have done, that is going to be an invitation out of heaven. It is works free entrance only. Look at verse 9 of our text today. Is this blessing then, Paul is saying, on the circumcised only or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal, a seal of what was to come of righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. Why? So that he might be the father of all who believe without being baptized or without being circumcised, I should say. My flip. Uh, righteousness might be credited to them. Now, at this point in time, the Jewish people might be thinking, hey, what about us? Well, Paul continues in verse 12. He's also the father of the circumcision. To those who are not only of the, those who are of the circumcision, also both. It's a sign that points to the seal. Our baptism is a sign that points to the seal of what is to come with the life of Christ. So who receives the blessing of righteousness? Only those who are circumcised of the heart, of the heart. Only those who come in faith. But what is the result of receiving the blessing of grace? What is the result of this? Verse 12. The last part of the verse I just read. Who are not only, Abraham is the father of circumcision and uncircumcision, of baptized and unbaptized, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, when Abraham was called, he obeyed. When, Abra when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he left not knowing where he was going. What is the result of receiving the blessing of grace? Obedience. Obedience doesn't give us grace. But obedience is the result of grace. I wonder... Let's hone in a little more, right? Let's just pull in a little bit more. I wonder, have we made believe a new circumcision? I don't know what, this is what I mean. Have we made belief the new circumcision? We understand, we say, we say, not by baptism, not by Lord's table, Really? Is that what we actually demonstrate? See, maybe it kind of goes like this. Maybe this was you. You know, Sunday school, Bible school, Christian camp somewhere. Goes like this, right? Little Johnny. Huh. Little Johnny. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Oh, Johnny's eyes get real big. <laughs> no. No. 
counselor then says what? Counselor says says what? Well, you believe, Johnny. You believe, little Johnny, right, that, that Jesus died for your sins? Yes, I believe. Whatever you say, I don't want to go to hell. Then pray after me, and let's get you baptized. Can you relate? Have you heard it? Believe and be baptized, and you're in. Do we overemphasize belief and baptize baptism to the point that it becomes 2022 circumcision? But you know what? When the above scenario happens, I wonder, aren't we using grace as a commodity? Are we using, okay, you prayed the prayer, you were baptized, you're good to go. I don't know too many eight-year-olds or five-year-olds or three-year-olds or two-year-olds that can understand the concept of grace. We need to be careful of those we are baptizing and those who are we are saying are Christian. I'm not saying they can't be. So we have to be careful that we're not setting it up for what exactly the Protestant Reformation fought against and is still continuing to fight, may I say. And yet, it is truly that simple. Simply believe. No works. Simply believe. Circumcision of the flesh. Easy to see. Circumcision of the heart. Not so much. Jesus told the Philippian jailer, or the Paul and Barnabas told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It truly is only about belief when belief is understood for what it is. Believe on the Lord, Master. It's exactly what it is. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Serve is incorrect. You cannot be slave to two masters. I can certainly serve two, two employers, but you cannot be a slave to two. Believe on the Lord. Believe Jesus as master in the Roman time. We don't understand. We don't understand the instructions that they were given. Belief leads to obedience. So let us be careful that we are not inadvertently falling into works by a form of indulgences, knowing our sins are forgiven, and yet thinking we must still do something to be welcomed into heaven. When you are asked the question, why should I welcome you into heaven? May you be able to simply say, grace, grace. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. Father, I thank you that it's not by works, not by anything I can do. And yet, obviously, we understand grace does lead to obedience. But, Father, I think we have two extremes with us the scenario is pretty typical, I believe, that it's either either we're 
extremely focused in on that cheap grace that isn't grace at all, or the legalistic grace that isn't grace at all either. And so I pray, Lord, that you can simply strip away the things and that you could indeed trim up our hearts, stir up our hearts, open our hearts and our minds to truly your grace, your free grace given to us, given to Abraham as our example, a faith that he had that he didn't even know what it was. May we come to you that simplistically. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.